This week on One Body Stewarding God's Creation, Divine Mercy Radio is airing a talk, by permission, of Deacon Harold Burke Sivers on The New Atheism. One Body What does The New Atheism say about how the world was created? One Body What are the holes in their arguments? One body, stewarding God's creation. Well, you're about to find out. Here is Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Tonight I want to talk about this new atheism. You know, so many of our young people are raised in the church. They go to Mass on Sunday, they go to catechesis, they go to scripture class, they go to the sacraments. And then when they go to uni, a lot of kids seem to question, well, is there really a God to walk away? Because these atheists, they sound so smart and they're so intelligent. And is it reasonable to believe? And what about the problem of evil? So it's very important today that we see that belief in God is actually reasonable. And that atheism, in the end, although it's very, very intelligent people, it makes no sense. And we'll see why. So first of all, we have to look to the scriptures. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, preach the word. Be urgent in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Be unfailing in patience and in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own liking. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. He also says in Colossians, see to it that no one makes a prey of you by philosophy or empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. So this is the mission that we have who's from St. Paul, to not be caught up in the ways and thinkings of the world and thinking of the culture, but to be rooted firmly on the solid foundation of our one holy Catholic and apostolic faith. So first of all, let's define our terms. When we talk about atheism, it comes from the Greek word atheos, which means without God. So for atheists, it's not just a matter of no belief in God. There is no metaphysical. There is no supernatural. There's nothing beyond the physical, material world. We also talk about theists or theism. That's what we all are. Theists believe that there is a God, but there is a personal God who is present and active and involved in our lives in the world and in the universe. Then we have deism. Deism also believes that there's a God, but deists are often believe in what they call the watchmaker God. It's a God that kind of winds up creation and the universe and kind of puts it over there and walks away and does something else and lets this run by itself. No interaction with any of his created reality. That's what Albert Einstein was, by the way. Now, when we look at a little bit of the background of atheism, we see it goes all the way back at least to ancient Israel. Now, we know that the Israelites were surrounded by pagans 
who believed in many gods, but there were also people who did not believe in God that interacted with the Jews. For example, in Psalm 14, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God above. And as we get toward the time of Jesus, we see, of course, that the Greeks and the Romans believed in many gods. But there was one guy in particular named Epicurus. Epicurus believed that the life was, philosophy of life was just based on peace and security, freedom from fear, and the absence of pain. That pleasure was good and pain was bad. So you lived for pleasure and you did everything you could to avoid pain. And then at the end, you just die. He was convinced that all that was real was what could be measured and observed and quantified. The material world was the extent of our existence. So he was the first one to believe, uh, in a sense, the first atheist, although it wasn't called atheism until much, much later, until around the time of the Enlightenment. But this was the first guy to start to believe that there was nothing except what we can see, taste, touch, hear, measure, and quantify. Now, as the Enlightenment period began in the 17th and 18th century, that's when we began to get the formal name atheist, and it began to be systematized. And right after the Enlightenment, there were a f the formation of two types of atheism. There's what we call theoretical atheism. That was based on a system where there is no God, no designer, and it's more academic. So folks like Ludwig Feuerbach, Sigmund Freud, Karl Marx, these were the people who promoted an atheist mentality. And then there were practical atheists, people who just didn't intellectualize about atheism, but said, how do we infuse this into everyday life? So people like, for example, Friedrich Nietzsche, Gene Roddenberry, the guy who uh, created Star Trek, uh, Isaac Asimov, these were people who took this atheism and started to impart it into everyday life. Now, traditionally, up until the time of the Enlightenment, there were really, atheism wasn't really a formal thing. So the way that people understood the world, and these are big words, but I'm gonna explain them, was the, the, the worldview was teleological. So Plato, Aristotle, Aquinas, Augustine, believed that the universe had a design and a purpose and an ultimate end. That there was a why to our existence. All right, that's called teleology. And there was also an essentialist view of the world. In other words, objects can be discerned and understood by their essences. All right, by, their, by the very nature of what they are. So for example, if I say dog, every person in this church just formed an idea in their mind of what a dog is. Some people had a big dog, some people had a small dog. Some people had a brown dog or a black dog or a Rottweiler or a German Shepherd, but everybody understood when I said dog, you formed an idea in your mind about what that is. So in other words, you were able to abstract from your personal experience and create in your mind a vision and understanding of what a dog is, right? Now, that's important. Now, after the Enlightenment, they were saying that, no, 
There is things don't have essences. There is no difference between a chair, the benches that you're sitting on, rocks, human beings. There is no difference. It's just a different arrangement of a random set of molecules, of meaningless moving particles. There, all these things that we understand as essence, as being, are simply projections that we impose with our minds. So there is no, unless you can see a dog and touch the dog, the dog's not real. So the world is just a machine and a mechanism, nothing more. Now, when we get to atheists today, now atheists prior to 9-11 in the United States, when they flew the planes into the World Trade Center, atheists prior to that time at least looked at philosophical argument because they wanted to see, they, they, want, they were open enough to appreciate where the truth was leading them. And they were open to looking at philosophical argument. Now, the new guys today, especially the four horsemen of atheism, right? Daniel Dennett, Christ, well, Christopher Hitchens is dead now, God rest his soul. Now he knows there's a God. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Those four guys are considered the horsemen of atheism. Stephen Hawking is not. I mean, he just died too. Now he knows the reality. And, and he's out of that wheelchair, by the way. Maybe. Uh, we don't know. But these new guys will have nothing to do with philosophical argument. In fact, they caricature Aristotle and Augustine. They mock them and make fun of them. Don't even want to consider anything besides their scientific methodology. Now, what are some of the characteristics of this, this new atheism that these four guys, not they're not the only ones, of course, but those four horsemen kind of promulgated this new set of atheism. First of all, they are intellectually arrogant. Dawkins is an evolutionary biologist. Sam Harris is a neuroscientist. Christopher Hitchens was a journalist. Stephen Hawking was a theoretical physicist and cosmologist. And Daniel Dennett is an evolutionary biologist and cognitive scientist. So they have very narrow disciplines. And because they're so focused on their own disciplines, they're not willing to look at anything outside of their narrow way of understanding the world. So they're intellectually arrogant. Next, they are vincibly ignorant. The idea of existence of a deity is part of the natural moral law. St. Paul taught this very clearly in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. The foundational principle of the natural moral law is do good and avoid evil. That's why if there's an earthquake, for example, in Haiti, even an atheist will go to help those people. Now, why would an atheist doesn't believe in God want to go to Haiti to help people in an earthquake? Because they are moved by the natural moral law that is implanted in their hearts by God that says do good and avoid evil. See, so they deliberately don't even want to look at natural law that may be impelling them toward the truth. So they are blatantly denying the fact that God could reach them through the natural law. So they're vincibly ignorant. Next, they're polemical historicists. So in other words, atheists have slanted and skewed the history of Western civilization. 
And so we're going to undo some of those myths tonight. Particularly, we're going to talk about the Crusades and the Inquisition. And we're going to undo the myths that the atheists have been pushing for the last number of years. Also, they're excellent rhetoricians. They love to push rhetoric to get people's emotions going without facts. For example, some quotes from some atheists. Religion is dangerous because it is used as a tool by people to wield control over others or to advance their own agendas, saying that God gives me approval for my actions. So, for example, I was listening to a podcast by Sam Harris, and Sam Harris has a big problem with the Old Testament, especially Leviticus. He does not like that book. So, for example, we read in the Bible that God destroyed this people or God killed these children. You know, he says, well, see, what kind of, you want to believe in a God like that? Look at that. Now, hold on a second. Here's what he's not taking into consideration. Say you're at a traffic light. You're stopped and the light turns green and you wait maybe two seconds and then you proceed. But as you start to go through the green light, a car runs the red light and misses your car by a few inches. And you say, oh, Jesus, you saved me. Thank you, Jesus, you saved me. Jesus ain't saved you. Your, your reflexes saved you. But you attributed it to God. You see? So in the Old Testament, God killed the, they didn't, God didn't kill those people. The Israelites killed those people. But they attributed anything that was good to God, anything that was bad, that means, oh, God took his favor from us. He removed his favor from us. We're, we're, we're not seen as good in the eyes of God because this happened to You see, so their whole experience was a direct relation to what kind of relationship they had with God at the time. You see? So that's what Sam Harris fails to appreciate. They say things like atheism is for the intelligentsia. So to be an atheist, you have to be intelligent. If you're not an atheist, you're an idiot, is basically what they're saying. Now get this one. It, this is Peter Singer, right? A very formidable atheist. It would be more ethical to kill a newborn baby than to kill a pig because pigs are smarter. That's an actual quote. Value is determined by the level of intelligence. See, for atheists, what makes you valuable is not the fact that you're made in the image and likeness of God. What gives you value is how smart you are. That's what he's saying. I'm an atheist so I can be a better person. I don't need some holy book or some man in the sky to tell me what to do. I'm free to be a good person. Mm -hmm. So many of us Catholics fall into that same category. I don't have to go to church on Sunday. I don't have to follow the church's teaching on contraception. I can just do what I want because I, all you got to do is be a good person. You don't need organized religion. You just need to be a good person. You know, maybe a Buna Katar. I looked in the Bible. I can't find one place where Jesus says, just be good and you'll get to heaven. I can't find it. He doesn't teach that. Jesus said, if you are to be my disciple, a disciple is someone who hears, accepts, 
and put into practice in their life every day the teachings of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Catholic faith. If you pick up your cross and follow me, then you're my disciples. Not just being good. An atheist can be a good person. Doesn't mean they're going to heaven. That's not who we are. But yet we fall into this lie of the atheist. So now let's take a look at some of their arguments. How should Catholics respond to some of these claims by the atheists? They say, for example, science and religion are incompatible. You cannot mix science with religion. So two points here. They forget that scientists were the ones who laid the foundation of modern science, were religious men. Anybody know who? And nobody will say there's the Big Bang Theory, even uh, string theory physicists and stuff will talk about the Big Bang. Anybody know who came up with that theory? Catholic priest. Yeah. A Catholic priest was the one who came up with the Big Bang. Einstein said that his theory of relativity was divine inspiration. Now, Einstein was a deist, all right, watchmaker God, but he says in his, in his biography that God does not play dice with the universe. He says, science without religion is lame, and religion without science is blind. Einstein also said, there remains something subtle, intangible, and inexplicable. Veneration for this force beyond anything that we can comprehend is my religion. You see, so even though it's a little warped, he still understood that there was something out there that he couldn't explain that was the cause for everything he was finding in his scientific theories. Another famous atheist, Anthony Flew, said that a deity, or superintelligence as he called it, is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature. Another proposal by the atheists. Science can explain the origins of everything from the beginning of the universe to emotions. So science can explain everything. Okay, let's have science try to explain consciousness, right? Unless you can see, taste, touch, measure, or quantify something, for the atheists, it's not real. So how do you explain consciousness? There's no consciousness cells in the brain. Consciousness has no shape, no size, no weight, no characteristics of any physical objects. But yet conscious exists. We're all conscious right now. How does that happen? Any atheists here can explain? No, I don't think so. What about conceptual thought? We talked about this before, the point made by atheists. Things don't have essences. So tables, chairs, rocks, dogs, there's no difference between them, just a different arrangement of random molecules. So when I speak of dog, you don't think of a specific, just like the, the example we just gave, I said dog and you formed in your mind. Now think about this for a second, how important that is when it comes to our faith as Catholics. A little footnote here. There was a guy named William of Ockham who denied that there was anything except the real. So he's like a, he, was a, he was a priest, but he was kind of thinking like an atheist. He developed something called nominalism. 
Nominalism says that reality could not be known by the use of universal and abstract concepts, only by the empirical study of specific individual objects. So he proposed that. So now, what are the, now who fell under his spell? Martin Luther. Now think about this for a second. Transubstantiation, right? So you have bread and wine that looks like bread, that smells like bread, that tastes like wine, that smells like wine. And then we believe through the power of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus did at the Last Supper and the words of institution and through the action of the priest through Abuna, that bread and wine become God. The fact that it still looks like bread and wine is an accident, a philosophical accident, but the substance of nature of what that is, is changed. Amen? But if you think like an atheist, subs- there's no such thing as substance, then think of Luther. The whole idea of transubstantiation is completely worthless. He said, how can this bread be anything but bread? You see? So he couldn't even extrapolate to the idea of essences and natures of things because all he was looking at was the physical reality of what was in front of him. So even Luther came under the spell. And the other thing about we're all depraved, like dunghills covered with snow. So we can't, this idea of deification, of the life of God within us, was completely ridiculous to Luther. So there's two big tenets of, Protestant, of our Protestant brothers and sisters that were based on an idea that were first promulgated by atheists about things have no essences or natures or beings. And so what was his solution? Sola fide, faith alone. Now going back to the atheist, so consciousness, conceptual thought, what about the self? Every cell in our body changes every seven years. Yet we're the same person now when we're 80 as when we were eight years old. My dad, for example, my dad loved alcohol, womanizing and cigarettes, right? He destroyed our family. He came to faith in Jesus Christ at 74 years old. He had a powerful encounter with Jesus, changed his whole life, baptized everything. Now, if you took a blood test from my father when he was 20, and you took a blood test from my father when he was 74, what would it show? He's the same person, right? But he's not, he was, he's not the same person, and well, he's dead now, but he was the same person when he was 74. He was a completely different person. But yet, science would say he's the same person, but spiritually, intellectually, very different person. So an atheist would say that any of our encounter with God and the Holy Spirit, that's not real. That's just something that we impose with our mind. What gives you a first-person perspective? There's no organ in the brain that performs understanding. Neurons don't tell me what to say next. You can measure brain activity and neurological activity, but that doesn't tell me what's going to come out of my mouth right now. That doesn't determine my actions. How does atheism explain linguistics or language development? How does atheism atheism explain art and music, ideas that are formed by conceptual thought? If that's not real, 
how can we have art and music? And the biggest thing, they can never give you a reason why. The heart longs to know why. Why do I exist? Why am I here? What's my purpose? Atheist says, you have no purpose. You live, you die. That's it. They can't, but so they, so atheism can never satisfy the deepest longing of the human heart. Now, what about some of their scientific stuff, like uh, the argument from chance? In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins writes, a hundred year old marble statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary, if it starts to wave at you, that's not impossible, only very improbable even if that probability is astronomically small. So you see what he's doing. He can't say there's a supernatural, so he can't say there's any miracles. Because if he says there is, that means there's a possibility there could be God. So he says that nothing is impossible, only very improbable. So if anybody's looked at that book, you see that he's a, he has a calculation in there for the cow jumping over the moon. Remember the fairy tale, the cow jumps over the moon? He actually has a probability that a cow could actually jump over the moon. You're laughing because it is ridiculous. But what he's trying to show is that even if it's a small possibility, it's still possible because then that would deny the reality of God. Okay, my response to that argument. Chance is not a cause that produces an effect. Science measures the effects of observable things. Chance is not a cause that produces an effect that can be measured. Second, chance does not explain the origin of life. For example, evolutionary biologists would talk about a, a cell, right? Evolution. Evolution is, talks about moving from one stage uh, of life to another, so like from a Cro-Magnon man, an ape or a gorilla to a Cro-Magnon man, you know, different levels of, of from, from one species to another. But it doesn't explain how we got here in the first place. So for example, Richard Dawkins in his work describes a cell as a computer, very complicated computer, one cell. Stephen Hawking actually says the same thing. So how did we get a cell? Because a cell is not part of evolution. Evolution pre-proposes that there's a cell. So where do we get this cell, this supercomputer from? They want us to believe that there was this primordial soup, some warm water, some lightning hit it, and, a, and an Apple computer jumps out. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, when Dawkins was confronted with that very issue, he said, well, where, if, if that's the case, you get a cell, then where did the cell come from? Where did this primordial stuff come from? He said, probably, quote, well, maybe aliens brought it from another planet. Yeah, that sounds like reason and logic and science to me. What about the anthropical, anthropic principle of a fine-tuned universe? So, in other words, after the Big Bang, right, there formed 20 constants in the universe. So for example, we have the strong nuclear force constant, the weak nuclear force constant, the speed of light, under 86,200 miles a second. 
We have the gravitational constant, we have the cosmological constant. Now, the anthropic principle says that those constants must be exactly where they are right now. Stephen Hawking in his book, A Brief History of Time, page 125, paragraph three, says that if any of those constants were changed, not by 10%, not by 1%, by one part in a hundred thousandth millionth million. You hear what I'm saying now? If any of those constants, the speed of light, gravitational constants, cosmological constants, strong nuclear force constant, was changed by one thousandth, one part in a hundred thousandth millionth million, we would have no universe and no life. Not just homo sapiens, no complex life would have evolved anywhere. In other words, Hawking says, our very existence here is dependent upon the fine-tuning of a set of constants in nature. So Dawkins wants us to believe that we're just here by chance. So how does chance explain that if any of those constants were changed by an infinitesimal amount that we cannot have any life at all anywhere in the universe? Yet here we are. Another thing that defeats that argument is the bord vilenkin guth theorem which talks about entropy. So entropy measures the level of chaos and disorderness within systems. So if you have a low entropy, that means you have a system that has ability to do, to do a tremendous amount of work. If you have a high entropy, things are at equilibrium and has no potential to do any work at all. So some simple examples. If you're playing pool, I don't play pool, but if you're playing pool, you have the balls all racked up with the cue thing and the balls are all nice. That is a low, as a low entropy system that has ability to do a lot of work. So now you have to apply an energy to that, to that, to those balls. So when the cue ball rolls and the energy is transferred from the rolling ball into the other balls, it disperses all the other balls across the table. Now it has a higher entropy because now those dispersed balls have no ability to do any work. They're, they're, they're moving toward equilibrium, right? So now, you see what I'm saying? Higher entropy. My cell phone. The way my phone exists right now is, has a low entropy, because it works. If I take my phone and smash it into 100 pieces on the ground, it is now a disordered and chaotic system, higher entropy, more equilibrium, no ability to do any work. Hawkins want, and the atheists want us to believe that here's how the universe came about. I took my 100 pieces of cell phone, threw it up in the air, and it came down as a cell phone. What is the chance that that could happen? Crazy. But this is what so many young people are falling for. It makes no sense. But that's the theories that they're trying to prove. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned. We'll be right back with more from Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. We're back on One Body Stewarding God's Creation. The New Atheism with Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. Deacon Harold is discussing the atheist version of how the earth was created. Oscillating or bouncing universe. You've heard of this. So 
Universes are created because of the collapse of a prior universe. And the oscillating or bouncing universe because from the collapse causes the, the, the birth of another universe. And as those universes collapse, they birth. Now, not, not, hear what I'm saying. Not galaxies or solar systems, universes. That's what they're trying to, to, to say here. Now, Borg Goog Valenkton says this, because ultimately atheists say there's no beginning for anything. But the BVG theorem says this. So say you have um, a galaxy is moving away from us at the speed of 20,000 kilometers per second. And then you launch a spaceship, and the spaceship is heading toward this point in the universe that's moving away, and the ship is moving at 100,000 kilometers per second. So from my relative position, when I see the ship moving toward the universe that's expanding, what is, what is, how fast is the ship moving relative to the expanding universe? 80,000 miles, 100,000 minus 20 is 80,000 is my, is my respective velocity. As I move forward in time, what happens to velocity? Entropy, right? As I move out from the system, what, hap what happens to the velocity? It goes down. So what does that mean then? If you go backward in time, is the velocity going to be slower or faster? Faster, right? And if you go all the way back to the start, that means there has to be an initial velocity, right? That means there has to be a beginning. Oops. Why is that important? Because Stephen Haw uh, Hawking also in his book says, when, when I asked an atheist, I I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I know this seems really complicated, but let me give you a simple example of what I'm talking about. An atheist came up to me once and said that I can't, it's, it's complete, belief in God is completely unreasonable. So I said this, say I'm walking along the Amazon basin in South America, and I drop my phone on the jungle floor, and not too far behind me, a group of Yanomamo Indians that are indigenous to that region are on a hunting expedition. They find my phone and pick it up. They've never seen, felt, touched, experienced anything like this technology before. Would they think that this phone created itself, yes or no? That the phone created itself? No. They would think that an alien or a god or something else. Why would they think that? because things don't create themselves. I'm sorry, did your shirt create itself? Did this bench create itself? Did the tree outside create itself? Can somebody tell me anything that exists that created itself? But it's all here, stars, planet, universe, light. Where'd it come from? Now Stephen Hawking says in his book, because there is gravity, the universe can and will continue to create itself out of nothing. What's the problem with that? He doesn't explain where gravity comes from. Something can't come from nothing. If there's nothing, that means there's nothing. But that's the logic and the science that they want all of us to believe. Now, what about multi-universe theory? That there's a number of universes here. Now, here's the thing, all right. So here's their thought. If you're playing poker, what are the odds of getting a royal flush 
on the first deal. So a royal flush is 10 jack, queen, king, ace, all of the same suit. You shuffle the cards, first deal, you turn your cards over, 10 jack, queen, king, ace, all of the same suit on the first deal. I'll tell you. <laughs> it's four and 2.598 million are the odds of you getting a royal flush on the first hand. Now, the odds of getting a royal flush on any single draw, so as you play the next hand and, and on a single draw is one in 649,740. But as you play more hands, the odds of at least one hand being a royal flush increase or decrease? Now, I'm not talking about the odds of an individual deal, but as you play 10 hands, 100 hands, 1,000 hands, the odds of at least one of those hands being a royal flush increase or decreases? Increases, amen? So that's the basis behind multi-universe theory. They're saying, because remember the odds of our universe having any life at all, of having low entropy event, and then, you know, the, to, to change any of those constants. So the odds of us having life by chance is infinitesimal. So what they have to say is, well, we have multiple universes. Just like the dealing the cards, the odds of at least one of those universes being a universe that can have life increases the more universes that you have. What's the problem with that? You can't prove it! They're telling us, unless you can see, taste, touch, measure, it's not real. But yet they propose multi-universe theory. They can't even prove that there's another universe besides the one we're in now. It's ridiculous. What do some scientists say about multi-universe theory? For, this is Paul Davies in his book, A Brief History of the Multi-Universe. For a start, how is the existence of other universes to be tested? How do you test an empirical test to show there's another universe besides the one where the universe that contains tens of millions of stars, millions of galaxies within our one universe, how do you prove there's another universe? Invoking an infinity of unseen universes to explain the unusual features of the one we do see is just as ad hoc as invoking an unseen creator. So in other words, he's saying, if you propose multi-universe, that's the same thing as saying there's a God. You can't prove either one, but, but their theory is supposed to be based on science, but it can't prove anything. But belief in God is not? I don't think so. I'm not saying that there's not multi-universes. I'm saying they can't prove it. Now, the last thing about multi-universe is so what? Say there are multi-universes. Okay, that doesn't explain how universes originated in the first place. Multi-universe does not disprove God. And again, multi-universes doesn't explain why there's a universe in the first place. Here's an interesting argument. This is from Sam Harris, who's very popular in the U.S., by the way. Of all the new atheists, I think Sam Harris is the one that most young people gravitate towards. He's, he talks about morality as a byproduct of natural selection. So he says, where do our notions of right and wrong come from? So how do we know that something is right and how do we know something is wrong? 
Well, this, this, this is a quote from him. Well, clearly, they've been drummed into us by evolution. They're a byproduct of our apish urges and social emotions, and they get modulated by culture. So hear what he's saying? So our idea of right and wrong comes from evolution from apes and from social emotions that are modulated by philosophy, economics, sociology, psychology, neurobiology, all determine right and wrong. Okay, here's two responses to that. Natural selection does not explain consciousness, conceptual thought, the self, free will, or any of that stuff. Cultures since the beginning of time have always had do's and don'ts that cannot be explained by natural terms. Where does this come from? Something can't come from nothing. So Sam Harris is also a big proponent of, of free will and how the problem of evil in the world. He says, an all-loving God cannot exist because of the presence of evil and suffering in the world. So he says that is a result of evolution, and I say no. Why? Because evolution cannot explain the depths of human evil. So for example, evolution talks about survival of the fittest, right? So if I'm a lion and I'm hungry, I'm going to kill an antelope and I'm going to eat it. But the lion would not think, man, I'm going to wipe out every antelope from the face of the earth, like what Hitler did or Stalin. Evolution doesn't explain that level of evil. If it's a biological, then we're like the lion. I, I kill because I need to. I kill because I have an urge to eat and be satisfied. But a lion would not think I'm going to kill every antelope in the world. E evolution doesn't explain that, the problem of evil. Free will, Sam Harris fails to recognize, can be used for both good and evil. Evil is a weakness not a power. God is all-powerful. God has no weaknesses. Evil is a weakness that can have power over us if we let it. That's what he fails to understand. Evil is a weakness. God has no weaknesses, so God doesn't create evil. In the book of wisdom, very clear, God does not create death. Death came into the world because we chose ourselves over God. Now let's look at the track record for atheists and free will. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, who was an atheist and eugenicist, this is her thinking. The most serious charge that can be brought against modern benevolence is that it encourages the perpetuation of defectives, delinquents, and dependents. These are the most dangerous elements in the world community, the most devastating curse on human progress and expression. In other words, black people, Hispanics, Asians, Down syndrome children, anybody that didn't look like her was not human. Our friend Peter Singer, who talked about pigs are more valuable than human beings, also says this. It would be ethically okay to kill 
one-year-old children with physical or mental disabilities, although ideally the question of killing these children would be raised as soon as possible after birth. He also says that sexual activity between humans and animals is okay as long as the animal doesn't get hurt. But yet, we Christians are the ones that are idiots. What about, in my country, the American Psychological Association? They were trying to reclass pedophilia, pedophilia, sex with little children, prepubescent children, as another sexual orientation. You think I'm kidding. I, I can show you the quotes. I can show you exactly where these sources are from. This is no joke. This is what's happening now in our world. It says, no one chooses to be emotionally or sexually attracted to children or adolescents. The cause is unknown. In fact, the development of attraction to adults is not understood. Wow. And this is supposed to be the intelligentsia? What is our response as Catholics? The right to life is the most basic and fundamental right that exists by the very nature of our human being. We must not weigh human suffering on one hand with the value of human life on the other and determine that some shall live and some shall die because of the amount of suffering that we perceive they might endure or they may inflict on others. We exist not to avoid suffering, but to find meaning in the suffering that's unavoidable. Killing human beings can never be the answer to suffering, no matter how great that suffering may be. A truly compassionate response to a woman who has found out she is pregnant is not to kill the growing baby inside of her, but to create a society that welcomes and cares for both the mother and the child. So once you talk to atheists about science, then they're gonna start hitting you on history. What about the Crusades? What about the Inquisition? What about those crazy things? Let's talk about the Crusades first. What were the Crusades? By the time the, the church got involved in the Crusades, the Muslim conquerors had, had taken over three quarters of the Christian world. It was a defensive war, not offense. We didn't go on offense. We were playing defense. Now, why were the Crusades? Let me give you an example. I used to be a, a police officer. If I walked into my home and I saw someone holding a knife to my wife's throat, I would take out my Glock and I would tell the person to stop what they were doing. If they didn't stop and start to cut my wife, I would put a bullet in them. What, what, what is my intention of doing that? To kill them? No. To get them to stop what they're doing. That's my intention. To get them to stop what they're doing. That was the same intention the church had at the Crusades. To get them to stop what they were doing. And again, three quarters of the Christian world was already overrun before the church even got involved. Now, most of these crusaders were not soldiers. They were farmers. They were people that had no trade. They just wanted to come and help the church. 
So when they went out, they did some stuff that, they were, that the church never asked them to do. Now, there were some abuses committed by some of the crusaders. That is true. But it was never activities that were sanctioned by the church. These were people that did things on their own without the authority of the church. And when the church found out about it, what they were doing, they put a stop to it. They put a stop to it. Now, quickly, I want to talk about the Inquisition, because this is a big one. Back in 1998, St. John Paul II opened up the secret archives of the Vatican. He was preparing for the Jubilee year, 2000, right? So he wanted to wipe the slate clean. He allowed a team of 30 scholars from around the world, only a couple Christians were in that group, unfettered access to the Vatican archives for five years to study the Inquisition. So from 1997 to 2002, these scholars had complete access to the entire Vatican archive on the Inquisition. They came out with an 800-page report. 800 pages. How many of you have ever heard of this report? <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, I thought so. I actually saw it. It's at the Vatican. Anybody can see it, but why haven't we heard about it? Because when the press announcement came out and a few of the scholars got up there and he started to read the executive summary, the media were like, oh, it wasn't as bad as we thought. Because mm. most of us, when we hear about the Inquisition, we're listening to black legend and not to facts. So let me tell you about what the facts were. The facts are this, back in the Middle Ages, there was an, if you were a heretic, that means that you were committing a capital offense against the state. And what would happen was you would go before a secular court and you would be tried by a secular court for heresy. Now, the people judging these cases were not theologians. The person would say, okay, what, what are you teaching? I'm teaching this. Ooh, that sounds bad. Let's kill him. Ooh, that sounds bad. Hang him. Ooh, that's awful. Burn them. That was happening regularly. In 1184, Pope Lucius III said, you know what? Hold on. Um, why don't you let us handle these cases? Because, like, we're kind of the experts in this thing. So he got the Dominicans, and they set up the first Inquisition. Now, Inquisition, all, all that means is it's an inquisitional system. That was the way courts were run back then. In inquisition, they inquired and answered. That was an inquisitional system. That's all that word means. So what the study showed was that about 125,000 cases were investigated by the Inquisition. 125,000 cases. Of those cases, 1.8% of the people were executed. So out of 125,000 cases, 2,250 people, 1.8% were executed by the state, not by the church. The church didn't kill anybody. The church didn't kill anybody. Here's what happened. What was the Pope's whole idea for the Inquisition in the first place? He was the shepherd. He saw the heretics as lost 
sheep that needed to be brought back into the fold. That's why he started the Inquisition in the first place. He thought the Dominicans could convince these people of their errors and help bring them back into the church. Now, it worked for the most part. So out of 125,000 cases, only 1.8% were executed. That means they were pretty successful in bringing people back to the church. But for the people who were recalcitrant, they were hard-hearted, I don't care what, I'm going to... It was still a capital offense against the state. So the church is like, look, if you leave here, you're going to be tried by the state. And that's what happened to 2,250 people. They didn't change their mind or, or, or leave their position of heresy. They were tried by the state and they were executed by the state. Now, when you see pictures of the Inquisition, you see like a bishop standing there at the gallows, right? Or at the stake. And they say, and so when you look at those pictures, the people say, see, the bishops were, they were giving the people last rites. That's why they were there. They weren't there endorsing what was going on. They were giving those people last rites. But yet, the picture is drawn. See, look at the church there burning the heretics. That's a lie. Read it for your, read the history. Don't listen to the polemics. Don't listen to the triumphalism. Read the history for ourselves. That's why nobody wants to read the 800-page report. (laughs) Now, were there some abuses? Yes, there were. And the church doesn't hide from that. Why were there some abuses? Because believe it, you're not going to believe this. There were some corrupt clergy. Gee, we don't have corrupt clergy anymore, do we? Of course we do. Jesus had 12 apostles. One was Judas. There were corrupt apostles all the way back from the beginning. There's corrupt apostles back in the time of the Inquisition. There's corrupt apostles today. There's going to be corrupt apostles tomorrow. But is your answer to problems in the church to walk away from the church? For, for example, when I was a police officer, let's just say that one of my officers pulled over someone for speeding. They were driving too fast. And of course, when the officer goes to the window of the car in the States, they ask for driver's license, registration, and proof of insurance. Now, say the officer sees that the woman driving is quite attractive. So he says to himself, hmm, you know what? You can get out of this ticket if you do this, a sexual act. (gasps) She's offended. She's angry, and rightly so. So she goes to the police station. She files a formal report against that officer. I get the report. Oh, my goodness. I suspend that officer. Somehow, it gets leaked to the media. Everyone says, he's supposed to, he was sworn to protect and to serve the law. And look what he did. And everybody's angry and outraged, and rightly so. Would your next logical step then be, I am no longer going to stop at any stop signs. I'm going to run every red light. I'm going to speed. I'm going to do it because of what that police officer did. I'm no longer going to follow the law. Is that your next step? No, it's not. So why would you say because of what this bishop did or this priest did, you're going to leave the church? And go where? Go where? I'm going to find a church with no sinners. Really? As soon as you walk in, you've got a problem now. 
So let's, let's do some numbers here. The, the Crusades, there's no exact figures, but the best estimate is 100,000 deaths. 100,000. Let's double that. Let's say 200,000 deaths in the Crusades. And we already know this, according to the 800-page report that was studied for five years by mostly non-Christian historians, that there were 2,250 people that died in the Inquisition. So let's 202,250 people. That's a lot of people, amen? That's a lot of people. Let's look at the track record of atheism. Atheist communism. Mao Zedong in China, 40 million dead. 40 million people dead. Stalin in Russia, 20 million dead. Hitler, six, well, 10 million, six million Jews, four million other people dead. Abortion, 50 million people dead. So you add that up, that's almost 100 million people dead from atheism and 202 versus 202,025 people, 250 people from Christian related, not by the church, those 2,000. So just by sheer numbers, which one's more rational? Can Sam Harris explain that from evolution? So in conclusion, Psalm 14, part of it says, and I quoted this before, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God above. Their deeds are corrupt and depraved. Not a good man is left. From heaven, the Lord looks down on the sons of men to see if any are wise, if any seek God. Think about the situation we're in today in our world as you hear this psalm written 700 years before Jesus. All have left the right path, depraved, everyone. There is not a good man left. No, not even one. Will the evildoers not understand? They eat up my people as though they were eating bread. They never pray to God. The psalmist nailed it thousands of years before where we are right now in our culture. Thank you all very much. God bless. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 105.7 KMDG Hayes, 101.7 KJDM Lensburg Salina, 88.1 KRTT Great Bend, and 88.1 KVDM Hayes. If today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts.